So now today is our fourth, it's our fourth chance to talk about the Four Noble Truths and the fourth of the Noble Truths. So there are probably people who haven't been, there are people who haven't been here before, so they didn't do Noble Truths 1 and 2 and 3. And I think there's a way of summarizing them all, uh, not to make sure it's shifted them, because we spent an hour on each of them, but really that things happen. Things happen in this world. They happen as a result of multiple causes, all of them affecting each other. Every action that we do matters. It's another way of saying them, saying the, 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 uh, the, the truth of interrelatedness. Probably a lot of people wrote about that in looking at the poster, about that everything depends on everything else. I think particularly uh, when we think about living in the world and making a difference in this world, uh, thinking about how uh, inaction is also a kind of an action. It's, it's a choice not to make a difference in the world and not to try to make a difference in the world. So every action counts, even if it's not doing anything. And it seems like, it seems like this is the piece of information that I learned just from reading, uh, this is the first time I'd read it, at last Sunday's New York Times, where uh, I'd heard something about it, but that's why I brought it along, that actually uh, what we think of as moral behavior, not harming other people, being careful that other people thrive, seems to be built into our DNA, that they're beginning to notice structures in the brain that actually, if we're born in a healthy way, that actually have to do with uh, taking care of each other and that uh, they're, they're, they're the progenitors of our sense of morality. And depending on the cultural milieu that we grow up in, of course, it's more or less uh, uh, emphasized. But the scientists are now hypothesizing that there are two things that are, that are built into that impulse to take care of each other. And one is the preservation of the species, that it's good for a species if it looks after each other. We are, after all, herd animals. We don't, most of us, live on our own. Most of us dependent on a, on a culture and a community and a family. So the idea of taking care of each other, the, the impulse to take care of each other is built in because it, it keeps the species going. Uh, I think that's true in, uh, in, uh, in all mammals, for sure, you know, that all the tests of, uh, all the things that you read that seem so, uh, uh, so dear that uh, uh, a whale, when it gives birth to a baby, knows how to keep it on the lee side of her so that it won't get buffeted by the waves, you know. That whale isn't thinking about, hmm, what's the lee side of me? Or you know, The whale just does that. You know, there are things that are built into it. If uh, you take a kitten out of a litter of uh, newborn kittens and carry it three rooms away and put it down, it will make a squeaking sound and its mother will come and find it and pick it up by the scruff of the neck and bring it back. That is built into us to take care of our young, to take care of each other, to join in kinship societies, and the scientists are hypothesizing that um, it's there so that the, the species will continue, but also that a feeling of pleasure is aroused by that. The pleasure part of the brain is stimulated by that. It's, it's, it's not only, uh, it not only preserves the species, but there's something about it that gives us personal pleasure, that it's a pleasurable feeling. And it's a pleasurable feeling that, that causes people and animals to do that. And then we tell stories about the pleasurable feeling uh, that elaborate on it. That I'm really glad that uh, uh, Bridget and Jamal came with their baby this morning. Then you see that here are two people who are so interested in the well-being of this tiny little girl. You know That once you have it, you can't imagine not having it. You can't imagine not taking care of it. Things become dear to us. And it pleases us when they thrive, and it pleases us to take care of them. So that I think that that impulse to morality uh, mirrors through everything that we've been talking about, about 
the the uh, attempt of human beings, the attempts of all of us, to develop the kind of mind that can stretch our view of family even past our very family to the whole community of the world family and take care of it. Not, ha- not put anybody's babies out of our heart. That the idea that we could have a world uh, where uh, the idea of an enemy is replaced by the idea of an extended family. Most prayer services end with peace for us, for all beings. I'm thinking about when people uh, uh, begin that that uh, a Catholic mass begins with "Peace be with you" and also with you. That peace is what we are wishing each other. That it ends with "Go in peace." That that place of peace is a desirable place because not only is our mind at rest, not only do we not feel frightened, but our ability to connect in a loving way, our ability to appreciate our lives, our ability to console is available to us if our mind is not troubled, peaceful. There's a way of thinking that that Eightfold Path of... um, guides for behavior or the cultivation of equanimity are not the cultivation of equanimity as an end in itself, but equanimity as the progenitor of uh, those impulses of friendship and compassion and appreciation. This road leads to happiness and this road leads to unhappiness is what you could think about as a sort of a uh, gross simplification of it. One of my friends is Roger Walsh, who many of you may know. He's a psychiatrist, um, written uh, written widely uh, about um, uh, the psychology of uh, transformation who, on, on uh, the faculty of UC Irvine. He's one of my friends. He's a, a, a meditation teacher as well. And he was telling me the other day about uh, the... the uh, summary of the happiness research that he's been doing, what makes people happy. And he said there are actually three characteristics of happy people, and they are the characteristics of gratitude and generosity and the ability to reframe. The ability to reframe. And there's a way, I want to stop with that for a minute and let you think about it. Does that make sense to you? Gratitude, generosity, and the ability to reframe. One of the things that I thought about when we talked, I was with Roger in a group the other day, and I said, you know, I think that they're actually all permutations of each other in a certain way. They're not three separate things. But think about them. Which of those, what do you want to say about, okay, here's a group, this group over here, up to Mijo. Mijo, put your hand up, okay? Everybody from Mijo straight and over there, you are the generosity people, Okay. Over here, um, through Marty. Put up your hand, okay? Everybody from there, Misha to Marty, you are the, what did I say? Generosity. You are the gratitude people, and you are the uh, reframing people. Talk to the person next to you about your topic. Not your whole group, just the person next to you. Two, Three people maximum. Have a little study group. In your group. You can be three people in a group or two people in a group. Reframe. Reframe. Continue. 
Hello, dear. Um, what I wanted to say to you, this is what I have on my mind, is that I really am grateful when you put your feet up on the cushion. You, I'm sure you know this from your yoga work, but people that are petite and their feet don't touch the ground fully, it's very hard on your spine, especially yeah, yeah, yeah. lower back yeah. problems. So I love it when I see you put your feet up on the cushion. <laughs> I will actually deputize you. I should always have them up there because otherwise my feet, my back hurts afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and it's really important. So I'll, I mean, whenever no, I'm here, I'm really you, glad to. If you play. see I'm not, don't have yeah. it. Bring me one. Okay. Thank you, yes, dear. Yes, I've, I've been doing that because yeah. it's important. Was you who put it out here? Yeah. Good for and, you. and it's important because I love you and I want you to be happy and healthy. <laughs> Thank you very much. It makes a big difference. You look good, by the way. Thank you very much. This is just an interim question. Interim question, interim question. First of all, no, wait, wait, wait with your group. First of all, are you having a good time? It looks like. Second of all, do you know the names of the other people that you just talked to? 
If you don't, would you find them out now? Okay, we'll do another thing like that right away. Remember who's in your group, okay? So you get to have some more with this group. So what did the reframing people think about... Um, what did you, what, we could have a spokesperson from each group. What did you think about reframing as the cause of happiness? Vicki, are you the spokesperson? <laughs> that could be, yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. How did you you have you want to give an example or? Um, Diane was giving the example of her ceiling falling in. Her sky fell basically. Yeah. And anger, but there's a very important that Diane and Vicky, because anger and indignation and fear—if your sky, if your ceiling falls in, it's not—it's—it's it's a very hard thing to maintain equanimity about. <laughs> Even if you said, I mean, if somebody rushed up and said, "Listen, in the sphere of the cosmos, what does it matter?" You know, at that point, it matters. You know that uh, that uh, because we don't live in the sphere of the cosmos; we live here. And, with ha- what else did the reframing people, some other reframing insight? Pasquale. That you're, you're not a victim, you know. You, you can have an experience and you can react, you know, and even contract, you know. But, you know, you can look at it and, uh, you know, you can find the, the goodness in it or find the, uh, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, beating yourself up. So Pasquale is saying that uh, if you make a bigger frame, you don't have to. You see that uh, you're not the only person involved. You don't have to beat yourself up, give yourself a hard time. You can uh, make yourself not the victim. Sometimes also not the villain. I think, uh, which is a good. I mean, that made a mistake, but not beat yourself up too much. What else? Anybody else from the reframe? Yeah. I don't know your name. What's your name? Erica. Erica. Did you did someone give an example specifically or no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe we'll think of one. Who else wants to say something? Yeah. Uh huh. Are you John? Gary. 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 You reframe it. You can accept it more. It seems more reasonable in the light of the circumstances. Yeah. Remind me of your name. Devin. Devin. Uh-huh. Thank you very much. All right, how about in the middle here? Who, who from the 
This is the gratitude group? Okay. What did you think? Roz, were you going to be a... on this whole big gestalt of how unworthy she is and how she doesn't take care of herself. And then we started talking about it and we started looking at the small ways we take care of ourselves every day, brushing our teeth. That's self-care. Making ourselves breakfast. And so out of that grew, oh yeah, well, maybe I'm not not taking care of myself, (laughs) but actually I am. And then the gratitude Yes, I thought I'm very interested in this. What else about gratitude? Who else has something to say about gratitude? Lavinia. It's interesting too how the 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 I actually think it's the brain. I we were having more trouble these days, not more trouble, but it's more complex these days to talk about whether you mean the mind or the brain, because the way it's used in Buddhist psychology is different from the way the neurosciences scientists are talking about brain. But what the filing system is that the a photo can remind you one person of this and another person of that and another person of that. And if it reminds us of something that was pleasurable, good feelings come up, unpleasurable, other feelings come up, and color how we see this moment. All very, very interesting things to think about. What else from the... Julie? Um, I didn't say this in the group, but it's been in my consciousness. On Sunday, you said the brain was like tofu. (laughs) uh, Sort of. I'm not quoting you. <laughs> no, I was actually uh, no, I was actually quoting Zalman, my my teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who said the brain is like tofu. No, no. And I just then I kept I had such gratitude for that image because I kept thinking sometimes I really put lemon juice, chili powder, and mustard <laughs> on my brain, and then I could just bathe it in a nice sesame sauce. Yeah. <laughs> So images, I guess that, that's what I'm saying is, for me, gratitude is a, is a practice, and uh, images, I just cherish images, and that help me remember, since there's another part of me that will, you know, mm-hmm. want to go down the toilet. So the thing is, to be able to see, this is a very important point that you end up in, to see that uh, to be able to notice the point at which the mind is going, my mind, or yours if you want, is going off on a rant because it's indignant about something. You know, this shouldn't be happening. And it's so seductive to go off on a little mini rant, not even telling other people, into a little internal mini rant. I am right, they are wrong. There's something about righteous indignation that's very vivifying. You feel alive. I am right and they are wrong. But actually, it's very inflammatory. It's not. It's not good for. It, it's not good in the, in the overall for how you feel. So that gratitude, by its very self, by its, I, th- I, I think it was Ross who was saying, saying thank you means at the same time that you're saying thank you for anything, you cannot be in a contentious mood. Yeah. You know that you have to be in a really receptive mood, not fighting, not warding off, 
So in some way, it's a, it's a, it's actually the absolute counteractive to the backing away and disconnecting ourselves from experience. You can't be th- saying thank you, which is a leaning forward, and be backing away from experience, not liking it, and polluting one's own mind space with not liking. Uh, yeah, Devin. That's a very good story, Devin. Thank you very much. That that thanking people, in fact, is disarming them. Really disarming. Uh, um, I, I read a phrase the other day, and also in this very same New York Times, about um, the Dalai Lama saying what we need to do these days is inner disarmament in order to have in order to have a peaceful world. And I think that this whole practice that we do is inner disarmament. It's I won't have it my way, I'll do it the way that'll be good for other people. So okay, we wanna have enough time for this group. Oh wait a Susan, what were you gonna say? In some ways I think I have I think I have a daily gratitude practice and I think it helps me deal with my own guilt about when things are good. If I just say thank you, you know, if I just enunciate them and and feel so grateful and thankful for them I, I feel I, I don't feel as guilty that, that I have them. Uh-huh. So uh, Susan is saying that the daily gratitude practice uh, not only makes her feel good, but makes her feel less guilty, I assume, about having th- about having a comfortable life yeah. when the world doesn't mostly have a comfortable life. And then it also puts the emphasis on what is comfortable because all around, you know, there isn't such, such comfort. Yeah. yeah. Okay, group of generosity. Sarah. Well, I first thought of um, the Buddha's saying that gen- generosity creates joy three times. When you when you think of giving, when you give, and then when you think of having given. And really, generosity is a joyful thing. And then I realized that um, in the Tibetan tradition, there, there are zillions of opportunities to make offerings. And that's to developing the, a sense of generosity. And um, a llama that I know loves to go um, window shopping in downtown uh, Union Square um, with the thought of everything he sees, he offers it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's as if, if I, if I possess this, I would give it away to you. And so um, I started a practice of when I get catalogs, those catalogs that you get that you want everything in the catalog, <laughs> um, to, to sort of cut off my craving, um, just offering it and mm-hmm. just, you know, just sending it out to everybody. And it's, it's a very fun way to develop generosity. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I think that the idea of, I would notice that you were the one uh, amongst all the blessings who uh, reminded us to bless Camden with uh, feeling satisfied. And I think that that feeling of satisfaction, uh, that generosity only happens in moments in which the mind in that moment thinks, I have enough. I don't need any more. And that that feeling of of satisfaction is actually fundamentally, I feel good, I don't need anything. I have everything that I need. I actually think that that, that, that's... I think of it as the second line of the 23rd Psalm, I shall not want. There will be that impulse for me, in me to needing something else. It, you know, it sounds like I'll have all my creature comforts met if you go on with the psalm. But I think that, uh, you know, I like to think about the experience of insufficiency and how is that met. Because, you know, when you think about it, when do we ever feel, I have enough. In this moment, I have enough. And that the mind really rests when it has enough. So what else did the generosity people think? Yeah. Um, I was speaking to my friend Jane here, and we talked about it first, and it, and 
material point of view, especially at the holiday time, when you're thinking of what is exactly the appropriate present to give someone, and how you stress about giving the right thing or the wrong thing, or would they like it or wouldn't they like it. But Paul's point is that you're giving something, and the idea of giving something to them is the good feeling that you want and that you get. That was the first part about giving something material to somebody, and that you get the good feeling. The other thought that we had together was that the giving is the giving of spirit and soul. And the idea of being open to give something to somebody, be it just a hug or a thought, or having a aura around yourself of which people could approach and share something with you of that kind of giving, which is really important. The people are feeling of safety or of your interest or of your time. What's your name? Larry. Larry, and that's Jean. Yeah. yeah. Mark. <coughs> so if generosity makes us feel so good, why aren't we more generous? Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't get bigger than back, maybe, than you. That's the other issue. People don't generous to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's keep that as a question, because I actually, I don't, I don't want to say, like, the easy answer if our minds were really relaxed, we'd be generous. I'm not sure that that's the whole thing. I think it has to do also with cultural training and um, the idea that we don't have enough, or um, whether we, you know, whether we, uh, whether we learn it as a habit. Um, my friend Jack Cornfield once said to me uh, years ago. He said, "I have a habit." that if somebody says something, you know, I admire something that you're wearing or you have or whatever, says, oh, that's wonderful. He said, I give it to them. Somebody, you know, if, 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 no, if the impulse arises in my mind, if the impulse arises in my mind, give it to them. I always act on that impulse. And I like that a lot. I, I actually took that up as a practice. And I've, I've given away things, but I've never given away things that I actually didn't, wasn't ready to. The impulse doesn't arise in my mind. That the impulse arises in my mind means that I'm ready to. And I've never actually minded anything that I've given. And I remember, you know, it's one of those things about, like uh, Sarah saying in the three things about generosity, and, uh, one of them is remembering it. And I remember certain times when somebody said, oh, I love that. And I thought, oh, I could give that, and did. And I don't remember the person's name, but I feel good about it. You know, it's very interesting. Yeah, one more, and then we got to do. There you go, Roz. I just remembering a story you told years ago. I don't remember it about being in New York and having a big bagel and giving it. And you know, it was too much. You loved bagels in New York and mm-hmm. things, and then there was too much for you to eat, so you always gave the other half away. And there was a homeless person on the street, and you gave them half your bagel and they turned it away mm. and how you felt about that and then what happened next was they opened their mouth and they had no teeth uh. and and so that I just always remember that story mm-hmm. part of generosity and kind of the openness to all of it mm-hmm. well that's a whole interesting thing to think about that Mark is saying, what, how come we aren't more, and what do we feel like if uh, if we are generous, but then we have the feeling, oh, people aren't generous back, what's that? Or, or that it was inept, the person didn't have teeth. And, or they don't receive your generosity. Or they can't. Or they can't. It's all a very... Uh, Mijo. Trying to answer that question, do you think we are able to be generous if we didn't receive enough as children? As babies and children? I don't know. I really don't know. It might be a factor. It might be a factor. It might be a factor. I think a lot depends on what you learn from your parents and whether they had a habit of generosity. Yeah. Yeah, huh. that's a good thought. I'm sure James is doing that in his joy class. Mm-hmm. Are you taking James's joy class? And he's going to start taking it. Uh, his next one starts next week. It starts next Tuesday. It starts Tuesday or Wednesday, but they are both full. However, <laughs> you can take it online if it's full. It since it's full, and you have to look on www.awakeningjoy.info 
dot com. Um, yeah, then we got to go back and finish. Yeah. I just I really appreciate the distinction that you made about we feel like we can be generous when we feel like we have enough. Mm-hmm. And it made me reflect on a practice that I was raised with, which is when I feel like I don't have enough, to ask myself, do I have a roof over my head today? Mm-hmm. Do I have clothes on my back today? And do I have food in my cupboard today? Mm-hmm. If the answer is yes, then that means you have enough and you're okay. Uh-huh. See, that, that, that's a reframe, isn't it? Isn't that a reframe? People can reframe. The mind doesn't like this, but then it can reframe. And somebody said it could, it could reframe. I have one friend who does this all the time. I'm not very good at this. Uh, I have one friend who's amazingly good at saying, this is the lesson that God wants me to learn at this time, you know, whatever it is. I, you know, I'm afraid I'm not that good. I think to myself, I have enough lessons. I don't need this now. <laughs> That's the truth. That is actually the truth. I actually admire this friend extremely that she can do that and seriously mean it. Uh, you know, I, I'm also not embarrassed to tell you that. It's just that she's in a place to do that. I have different things to do. But reframe, which is to put it in a bigger context, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what's happening but this is also happening. Yeah. I think that it's cultural, too. You know, like in Mexico, I once admired this huge lemon. It, was, it had lemons on it. It was a huge uh, pot. And the guy gave me the pot. I had to take it on the airplane. I mean, there, but in Mexico, that's, if you, admi- you have to be careful what you say. And there's a lot of cultures where you just have to be careful to not, unless you want to go home with a big pot. <laughs> you know what if we had you know not to be not to be naive but what if we had a whole world where everybody had a culture that if you said I'd like that people gave you that would be a different world let me let me just tell you because I want to I want to look at the homeworks because you did the homeworks and I want to look at them together um, ah it just came to me how to look at them together since we have so many homeworks and a lot of people and very little time um, I want to tell you the eightfold path, just so we will have completed this, so to speak, unit. If I were a grade school teacher, I would get demerits for not finishing the unit. So this is the end of the unit. Uh, the the Buddha, in laying out his path of practice, said the, that the key to a peaceful mind, that the third noble truth is peace is possible. Remember we talked about that last week. The fourth noble truth is this is the way we develop our mind that either abides in peace or returns to peace. And is that me beeping? No, somebody's beeping. That's me. I'm sorry. That's all right. The first noble noble truth is life is challenging, difficult, always changing. Um, The second is that suffering is insisting that this moment be different than what it is. The cause of suffering is not being able to accommodate this moment, uh, this experience, whatever it is. The third noble truth is that peace is possible. It's actually possible to say this is what's happening. And uh, and even it isn't what it's, I wanted, but it's what I got. It isn't just saying here I am passively receiving it. It means I do whatever I can about it, but I don't rile up my mind about it. It's the lawful fruit of everything that's come before. And the fourth noble truth is how do we maintain a discerning mind? Fourth Noble Truth has eight steps in it. Three of them are morality training, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Three of them are mind training steps. They're uh, wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness. Three middle steps of the Eightfold Path. That's actually what we're practicing when we sit and meditate together. Although I actually think that they are components of a waking life, whether or not you would say at this moment I'm meditating or not. If I find myself driving my car when I go home and I suddenly uh, think to myself, oh, so-and-so shouldn't have said this to me this morning, that wasn't so nice. Uh, Maybe tomorrow when I see her, I just won't be so nice back, and then she'll maybe think about what she said and maybe regret it and see my mind going down a wrong road. I can actually feel it in my body when it starts to go down the wrong road. More, I I regret to say I don't catch it so fast, but I feel it in my body. I'm gripping the steering wheel. I said, what are you doing? 
You're now telling yourself a story of recrimination and revenge that's like the talking about tofu that's poisoning the mind marinade. So it doesn't make you feel good. I can take up with people if I have something to say to them and discuss it in an open and clear and uh, civil and kind way. But I don't have to hatch revenge. I don't have to be in contention with my experience because it is in any moment that I'm in contention with my experience, it shouldn't be like this. It is like this. In any moment you think this shouldn't be happening. It is happening. And I am not in charge of what's happening. I'm a participant in this drama. And to be able to remember that enough, to remember how will I assess what's happening? How will I know what to do next? Uh, And the wise effort is saying, wait a minute, I'm going down the wrong road. Let me put my mind in another direction. Let's take a few breaths. Let's calm down. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's make a plan, what's happening. That is all wise mindfulness. It is wise concentration. Calm down is wise concentration. If we were going to be more cavalier about taking these memorable eight uh, eight stages of the path, we'd call them get a grip, think it over. I mean, it's it's a little bit too folksy a language for such venerable truths. But wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And the two last parts of the path are wise understanding and wise aspiration. And wise understanding is really both the beginning and end of the path, because it's assumed... Sometimes when you see the path written, actually, it begins with wise understanding, wise aspiration, and then goes on to morality and ends with mind training. But actually, I like it the other way, and uh, I like to think we arrive at understanding and that the understanding is all those understandings that we've been talking about, that being able to dwell with a certain amount of peace in the mind allows us to experience our best... uh, selves, our best selves, ourselves that are compassionate and generous and grateful and, and, and kind and honest and tolerant and patient, all the attributes that we would like to have. And understanding that we that comes wise aspiration, okay, I'm going to try really hard. So I will conduct myself morally in the world, not because something's going to come after me, if I don't, or I'll have you know bad demerits on some on some other plane, but really that we'll feel bad when I do something, even inadvertently. This is true for you. If someone says you hurt my feelings so much when you said that, don't you feel bad? I think that's part of the moral. Um, um, foundation that's built into us. We don't want to harm. So I wanted to be sure, and here it is, 10 minutes to 11, I wanted to be sure to have at least done the Eightfold Path and said it to you so I could feel that we finished this and when I come back in the end of February, we'll start a new topic. So there are two things to say. First of all, there's only one topic. <laughs> We actually never have a new topic. There's only one topic, and the topic is suffering in the end of suffering, happiness and unhappiness, and how to live in the world. That's the topic. And we do it every week, and we say, today I'm going to talk about da-da-da and da-da-da. But it's always the same topic, uh, disguised in some other way. What I thought we'd do, since we have just 10 minutes, is I would pass out the homework, take a homework, don't take yours. Take the homework that's on top. Uh, okay, there you go. I'm going to take the homework that's on top. Be sure to take somebody else's homework. Do we do it in our group? Uh, if there's not going to be enough, take one if you turned one in. That's a good idea. But if you didn't turn one in, sit with your group and use theirs. There you go. So the other person is your proxy. So is everyone on the same page? You know what it is that we're writing, that the homework's about, right? Okay. 
I, no, no, I'll, t I'll tell you what it's about. I will pass you. Okay. Actually, a very good idea. Be in a group and take uh, two or three minutes in your group to discuss what you've got. So it doesn't matter who's got what. Also, I feel very good. She's beautiful. She's got just an open, an open gaze. She just looks at you. Jamal had to go back to work. He felt he wanted to stay, but have, no. have you introduced this? No, that's why I want you to do it. I cannot open this. Every week I have the same problem. What, this assignment? This one. We're going to see now. Every, we passed that. Everybody had a right. Right. Now they all are discussing. Right, what you showed me the, the picture last when yeah. I saw you last week. Did I give you one? Yeah. You didn't have the postcards. Yeah. Ah. Here's one. Right, we looked at it on your computer. going for 10 days and then she's coming home and then some more is coming for 10 days. So it's nice uh, company. I like that much better. Yeah. And traveling around the, you know, the Northeast, the cold and blizzard, on and off trains. Uh, so yeah. if, at least if you go with somebody, it's nice. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's part of it. That's, that's one of the bigger... You know, with Tony being ill, I, I'm now traveling. If I go outside the house, I go by myself. It's a real thing. I, I was really thinking about a woman came up after I taught last night in Santa Rosa. I've been running all over the place. Um, but I've been having a good time. Yeah. But I, taught, I came home last night. She came up afterwards, said very helpful, very well. She said, my husband just died. So it's been a hard year. And she said, I've been married 52 so here's what I, here's uh, what I here's what's the situation, folks. I really want to hear. I, I I am aware that it is three minutes to eleven, and some people will be eager to leave. On the other hand, I really want to know a little couple of words about what people 
C and and uh, Tony the grandfather has brought you all a present. So don't go home without your present. So to have the present, you have to wait till at least a few minutes. But we won't take too long because people have to be other places. What did what was the essence of what you read and what you personally thought? Let's have five people say the essence of what they read and thought. There you go. Okay. <laughs> that's what that's what it's all about. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Erica. Okay, I'm working on it. Thank you, Erica. What else? There you go. There you go, Marty. Uh, that every individual embodies some uh, life experience and is on their own tra- trajectory. And this is uh, people who represent uh, some spark or some uh, piece of human experience which everybody will experience, has experienced, or could experience in the past, in the present, in the future, past generations, whatever. It's all there, and it's all in that moment. And the more uh, I or any of us are aware of that, the less we're caught up in our own individual selves and the more we're open to the whole of humanity and human experience and one is all and all is one. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Naomi. (laughs) Um, That if you really see yourself in everyone, you have to make sure, and you want to treat everyone well, you have to make sure you're treating yourself well. Mm. There you go. I I, I just kept thinking, and this is part of what you planned here, that the only difference The only difference is really truly in our minds, period. I really love it that you all like that so much and that you all did the homework whenever you did it. <laughs> um, and it doesn't matter when because the truth is whenever when, when I come back in the end of January and we again uh, start on a new topic, I'll say it's a different topic, but it won't be a different topic because there's only one topic. Now, Tony has a present for you. Do you want to give him out first and then talk about well, it? I'll just pass him around and and uh, you guys can just, I hope they're enough. And then he'll tell you how he got it and maybe we can look at it for two or three minutes together. Are we passing this down? We are passing. Oh, yes, pass those to me. Someone will, I'm sure, volunteer to put them together into a transcript. And that would be great to have. Okay, tell me. Talk about this. Yeah, this is um, the comment about about the value of art. This is uh, particularly there. There are oh dear, oh some more of those. No, there's two more of these, or actually a third. Here are a couple more. I guess some of these were. Mine over there. Okay, here are a couple more. You keep one. There are a couple more for. This is um, the comment about art. In some ways, art can be more articulate about what's going on uh, than pages and pages of didactic description. This is uh, done by a Tibetan artist. It's about two years old. And it just reflects. Um, and it's a traditional profile of a Tibetan uh, Buddha head, um, which is adapting itself to 
our culture. Um, it show, it's just a composite. Uh, it's a composite image. If you look closely, they're, they're all the cartoon figures you recognize. Who do you recognize? <clears throat> well, Snoopy is huge. Eeyore. Eeyore. Barbie. I didn't see the Barbie. And it's it's done in the uh, traditional proportions of um, uh, the Buddha head profile that's used in in Tibetan uh, Tibetan painting. And no, yeah, nothing is repeated. No. Wow. It's, it's um, you know, our practice is composite our, because we're, you know, we are receiving the Dharma from, in, you know, from the context of Western culture. So when we look around at, in the bookstore at all of the, uh, um, the, the Buddha images and the Kuan Yin images and, you know, they are... They are coming to us from the cultures when you know where they were produced, and a lot of them are now composite. If you look at some of the faces, you'll have you'll have a um, a body that's very clearly Thai, and a face that's Tibetan. So you've got the uh, a much sharper nose and eyebrows than the shape of a of a bow, which are Tibetan um, uh, stylistic um, elements. And so the, the, the images that we're seeing in the, in the bookstore even that sort of portray themselves as ancient are actually modern composites, a lot of them. And this is uh, a modern composite that is happy to be a modern composite. And um, Do you want to say a word about your Buddhist art collaborative show? Well, and could you do it sometimes here? Well, we certainly could. Um, I know Spirit Rock wants us... To, I've been working with this, uh, this woman in my sangha who uh, was in... You know, when, when Jack and... When people were in Thailand, she was in Thailand, but she was curating at the Bangkok Museum at the time and, and learning uh, meditation practice. She's a painter and an art historian who taught at Princeton and Maryland for, for, during her career. And the, when I first... It, uh, was was put in touch with her. I was just blown away by what she knew about the art of of the Dharma, and particularly about 20th century art. Uh, what's stunning is that um, most of the New York and and Western painters of the 20th century were were I mean the, the Mark Rothkos and the, and the Jackson Pollocks and um, the Jasper Johns, and they were all doing Dharma. And abstract expressionism, which was interpreted by the critics as some political thing, was really about the Dharma, pop art, um, all the minimalist stuff. And they, the artists used to complain. They would write letters to the New York Times saying, everybody's getting our, our art wrong. Um, but nobody paid any attention. And they did say to Joan, my, my friend, who's, uh, she, she used to hang out with them. They all hung out with uh, D.T. Suzuki and John Cage in New York, and they were all doing the Dharma. And they used to say, well, we can't put a, a Buddha head in our painting. We've got to sell these things. I mean, this is our livelihood. Um, so instead, they would, you know, Jasper John... It also had a lot to do with Clement Greenberg and making uh, a buck, you know? It well, really did. Some... It's more universal, more... <laughs> so, less uniqueness, and we can sell this to the minimalist high rises that exist here. You know, well, Bauhaus to our house. Mm. Clement Greenberg was really up for making a buck. Mm-hmm. He influenced Kuning and also Pollock mm-hmm. to go for it. Leave the image behind. I'm going to help you guys make a lot of money. Well, I'm not sure that 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 was what was motivating them at the time. But Jasper Johns would take a, an image of a uh, of a piece of white bread that would function as a mandala. And he said, it doesn't matter what you're looking at when you wake up. And uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, uh, intentionality uh, surrounding the Dharma 
in, in, in late 20th century art. So Joan and I are in the process of completing, it's taken us five years to do, a DVD that will um, uh, chart the history of, of uh, Dharma art. And we're hoping that, that we're 90% we're done with our first draft. Um, but we're hoping that it will get done um, by the summer is our idea. So maybe yeah. we'll do a day here. I don't know if people have seen the wonderful show at Irving Buena Center, but it's artists look at the Dalai Lama, uh -huh. and it's also with the show of uh, Anna Halpern's work. So it, I, it's wonderful. really worth going to see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, you were very great to stay late. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Tony. Uh, Thank you. He's no, he's uh, he's. Uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.